Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome, everybody, to episode number 60 of Collectible Live. Today is Tuesday, January the 31st, 2023, and my name is Jeremy Lee. I want to thank everyone who joined us last time with our guest, Mike Kantz of MC Sports Cards, as we reviewed all of the assets that are part of the inaugural BWIC on the Collectible platform. You can check that out on the YouTube channel if you would like. But let's get to this week's show and bring out this week's guest. He is the he is a fine wine expert and the CEO of Cult Wines America. Let's bring him out, Atal Tawari. Welcome to Collectible Live. How are you today? I'm doing great, Jeremy. Thank you very much. And uh, thank you and Collectible for having me on today. Oh, you bet. It's nice to have you. I've enjoyed getting to know you a little bit over the last couple of days. And I want to let everybody know who is watching. Please feel free to post any questions, comments you have in the chat. But uh, I'm going to ask you this first question to get started at all, which is, is wine truly uh, a liquid asset? <laughs> Good one, Jerry. Good one. Thank you. Thank you. Um, well, the answer to that is yes. Um, and uh, we'll, we'll learn more about it. But there's two ways that it's liquid. Um, one is the obvious way. It's a, it's a liquid that you can uh, consume, drink and enjoy. Um, but the other way is it's actually an investment that uh, you can buy and sell. So, yes, the answer is it is liquid. I, I got to tell you, as I came, I always like to start these episodes with a bit of an icebreaker question, something just to set the tone. And when I thought of that one, I thought, oh, how clever am I? And then I figured I'm sure that people have used that in this space before. <laughs> is it is, is, is it uh, a common sort of thing to hear that question in, in your industry? Uh, yeah, it is. And it's also a common joke. So it's okay. That's okay. We heard it before, but it's still funny every time. Um, and I'm sure you, I'm sure you'll hear it again. Um, okay. Well, Hey, it's good to have you. And, uh, so I have a lot of questions and one of the ways I wanted to approach this episode with you at all is that, you know, I'm a sports card guy. I, I, we've been doing, this is episode 60, somewhat of a milestone show for us here on collectible live this week. 
But, you know, I, I always view other collectibles that are also investments through the lens, through my lens, which is that of a lifelong, passionate sports card collector. And I'm kind of going to throw a few questions at you today that come through that lens. So uh, get ready for that. Let's say a quick hello to Richard Price. Welcome to the show. Daniel A., good to have you. You're for your fix of sports cards right before your basketball game. We are talking about wine tonight, but Daniel, <laughs> I assure you, we will be looking at wine through my lens, which is the, the sports card lens. Atul, I read your bio. You've got some, some significant experience in the world of finance. How, how have, you know, when you started Cult Wines, how has, how has your experience in, in the world of finance helped you be better at what you're doing with with uh, with cult wines in terms of servicing your clients and just building the business. Yeah, um, <clears throat> yeah. My my background is uh, I'm I'm a reformed lawyer, so um, I practiced corporate and securities law. Uh, that was a complete waste of time compared to what I'm doing now. But uh, no, I'm just kidding. It uh, it was great. I mean, you know, having been a lawyer, um, there's a lot of regulation in financial services, and that's where I was. So uh, stepping into a, a role with the fine wine investment company, obviously um, wine being alcohol is regulated throughout the world in different ways. Um, and so it's important to kind of understand your regulatory environment that you're operating in from that perspective. It's also important from the perspective of securities regulations. And so um, when we get to things like fractionalizing in order to fractionalize something, you have to comply with securities laws. So th that background, I think, helps. Um, and then I moved from the legal world to the business world and was an executive um, in asset management for a, a large Canadian institution called BMO Global um, and, and uh, was on the asset management side. From, from there, um, uh, I went to become the... Uh, inaugural CEO for Vanguard when Vanguard was looking to start up operations in Canada. So that time in the asset management industry, I mean, invaluable and learning to kind of work with clients on their objectives, understand their goals, um, their time horizons, and then learning how to match a portfolio to what they want to achieve and accomplish and all of those things that go with investments around asset allocation, all of that comes into play at Cult Wines. Interesting. Yeah, it sounds like you've, you're definitely the right man for the job from, from, from that description. So what, what is it that makes wine an interesting asset, an interesting investment uh, vehicle, you know, versus just being a simple alcoholic beverage to consume? Well, there's, there's plenty to wine. I mean, obviously wine, it's, you know, if you like wine, it's it's a, a wonderful thing to uh, enjoy, share with your friends and family, and and talk about and learn about. Um, so right there, I mean, your your underlying investment is is kind of a, a fun thing. Um, but beyond that, there's the investment merits. Uh, and with with wine, it all starts with supply and demand. And so you know, you being a a sports cards guy. Um, you'll understand that. I mean, there's only so many cards in circulation that are legitimate of, uh, uh, you know, uh, Mickey Mantle's rookie year, for example. Over time, just like wine, some of those disappear. Uh, you know, they, they might've got thrown out or if you're like me with my old cards, you know, I played so much of throwing them against the wall to see who, who 
who wins uh, that they're not in good shape to sell. Um, so it's just like wine, supply and demand. There's only so much wine that's investment grade made in the world every year. It's a finite amount. And over time, because of demand, because of wealth creation around the world, because more cultures become wine drinking cultures, the demand increases, but the amount of supply doesn't really increase. So obviously economic supply demand, that means generally speaking, prices of fine wine will go up. Um, beyond that, as we've seen in this latest period, there's low correlations to equities and bonds. There are, there's low volatility in wine. There's what we call low downside capture, which is an investment term for when the markets go down, wine barely budges. Or uh, in this current period of the last two years, wine returns have been strong. Um, last year, 13% for cult wine. So we're seeing that it's not correlated. It's a hedge against inflation. And it's just an investment that has a lot of merits that should be included in a diversified portfolio. Yeah, interesting. You mentioned a few minutes ago that you know, wine investing, collecting is fun. It's fun because you enjoy for people who enjoy wine, you know, in sports cars, we, we call it the hobby and we've sort of claimed that term for ourselves and right. no one else can call their hobby, the hobby, only sports cards can. <laughs> I say that tongue in cheek, but is there a similar community and group of uh, like a, a subculture around wines where where you participants look at yourselves as as the hobby, the wine hobby, and 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 like speak a little bit about that and just the the community. Sure, yeah. I mean, there's definitely you know I, I won't call it the hobby capital H. I'll, I'll call it the enthusiast. as that? Um, there are definitely enthusiasts around fine wine, um, and you know it, it can range. Obviously, probably the same as with uh, with with trading cards or, or sports cards. There'll be some people who are kind of into it and learning and want to learn more. And then there's people who, you know, might have been collecting for 20 years, 30 years and might have an, a, an amazing collection. Um, it's the same with wine. You, you find amongst our client base, uh, you know, we have people who fit both of those categories. Um, and I think the one commonality for the most part is enjoying wine and either wanting to learn more or understanding the investment merits of it and wanting to access those um, those merits. Yeah, so similar to sports cards where we have advanced collectors, you have advanced enthusiasts in wine and, and more amateurs, people who are just coming in. Uh, and of course, people who are all along the different, the different uh, life cycle of an enthusiast or a collector. So that, that makes sense. Um, very quickly, Daniel A says, oops, just read the, just joined without reading the topic, but I love wine too. Well, I hope you're still there, Daniel, and good to see you. And good evening to you, Michael Hamm. Um, so Atul, I wanted to ask you now, you know, in again, in sports cards, there's a lot of excitement and value and passion that's attached to the nostalgia of those of the cards or the players. Is there any similarities within the the within wine and or for wine enthusiasts in terms of in terms of nostalgia is there a nostalgia in the in the wine enthusiast culture right yeah there is it might be a little bit different i think i'd, I'd kind of say there are two types of nostalgia there um number one is is the the wine itself right it's uh, people who might have experienced a particular wine let's say it's a uh, a brunello de montalcino and uh, they they had a trip to Italy where they drank some Brunello with 
their friends or their loved ones that they were with. And it just brings back memories of a trip, uh, where they had the wine, who they had it with, what was the atmosphere. So in that sense, it evokes some uh, memories and nostalgia, let's call it. In terms of the investment or trading side, um, it, it, it's, it is similar. Um, there are you know, obviously certain producers and uh, regions that are steeped in history, hundreds of years, maybe, maybe even a century of winemaking. Um, and so when you get to uh, the level of the, the serious enthusiasts, you know, you get into discussions around this person was the winemaker and then the, the plot of land was passed on to these, you know, their, their children, there were two children and that branch went on to make these wines and the other branches went, gone on to make these other wines. And so there is a history, there is um, a tradition in winemaking. So I'd say there is nostalgia. It's a little bit different than trading cards where, you know, you, you kind of recall the team and, and who won the World Series or the Super Bowl and, and who was the most valuable player. It's a little bit different, but, but there is some of that. Yeah, I could see there being family tradition or what did your grandmother or grandfather enjoy the most or your mother or father, uh, a mentor, and then drawing on some nostalgic value there. I can definitely see that being part of the case. Daniel A has a question. He says, in your opinion, what country makes the best wine? Not to sound biased, but I think it's Italian. How about you? <laughs> uh, all right. Well, I'm not going to be politically correct with this one. I'll be honest. Um, I am an avid fan of Burgundy wine. And so um, I'm sorry, uh, I, I would have to say it, it is France um, in, in the sense of what I enjoy and, and my wife. We, we love Burgundy. Um, uh, I'll also throw uh, Bordeaux and, and, and Rhone in there. But, I, but to be honest uh, with it, Daniel, I'd say kind of our day-to-day -day wines, uh, and I brought up the Brunello example. I mean, we've been to Tuscany a few times. We love it. Um, and, and more day-to-day -day, uh, Italian wines are, are excellent, excellent value, great wines. Um, and so, yeah, we enjoy Brunello's, uh, even some great Chianti's and, and, of course, Barolo's. So Italy's making some awesome wine. Awesome. Okay, cool, cool. So I wanted to ask you about loyalty to, you know, loyalty among collectors, investors, connoisseurs. Uh, to a certain vineyard or, or region, you know, in sports cards, we might be loyal to a team or we're loyal to a brand or a manufacturer. How prevalent is that approach in, in wine, among wine enthusiasts to be loyal to, to a, a region or, or a brand? I think it's pretty prevalent. Um, the more you get into the, into wine, um, I think everybody has their own wine journey. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, again, uh, since Daniel asked the question, I can say, I, I would say that all roads lead to Burgundy. You'll eventually get there. <laughs> but, uh, you know, that's just, that's, that's my, that's my unique experience. And, and I, I mean, I started out um, with Bordeaux and, and California and, and Italy and then um, found my way to Burgundy. So it, it's a great journey. Um, I think people do have allegiances. I mean, you run across a lot of people who say, for example, I will never drink anything but California wine from Napa. Uh, and then you'll meet somebody who says, I will never drink California wine from Napa. Um, so it, it all depends, which is kind of what makes wine kind of interesting. And, and it's the same with sports cards. It's um, everyone has a different approach to it, maybe a, a different affinity for things. 
Um, and then when you get down to producers, it's it's very similar as well. There are people who, you know, you'll you'll rank producers and say this one's number one all the way down to ten, and um, they'll seek out wines, you know, maybe by their top five favorite producers. Oh, that makes a lot of sense and similar. And there's a nice similarity there with with sports cards. I like how you said that all roads lead to Burgundy and sports cards. And this isn't so widely known, but there's a group of people who like to say that all all roads lead to Michael Jordan. One way or another, <laughs> all, all roads lead to, to the, the goat of all goats. You can't um, go wrong. <laughs> no, exactly, exactly. I want to know about production numbers. It's a hot topic in sports cards. You know, how many copies of this card were made or that card? And oftentimes they put right on the card how many copies were made. They ser- serially number them with wines. Are production number are the production numbers well known and accessible? Are they accessible in any universal database? Does every um, I don't know what you call it, but every every uh, uh, harvest or every batch have these numbers attached? And, and do collectors and enthusiasts and investors? Do they pay close attention to these numbers? Yeah, it's a little all over the place. So um, there's no official database or universal database that'll tell you how many um, bottles of a particular, uh, you know, vintage and then down to the vineyard and down to the producer. Um, So often we rely on the producers to actually release that information. um, And our investment committee and group will scour all of that so that we understand at least to the best as we can how many cases of a particular wine were produced in a particular vintage Um, because obviously that impacts price Um, you know because wine is subject to the vagaries of mother nature and you know lately there's been um, early frosts that'll devastate um, you know uh, grape buds so grapes don't grow and you end up with a smaller production overall in certain regions that experience that, or you have droughts in California or floods in Germany, all of this impacts how many bottles will actually be produced that year. Um, so we do need to kind of collate that information from a, a number of different sources. Um, but also importantly, there's another aspect that isn't quite as public, which is some producers may look at that crop and say, look, uh, you know, we have 10,000 cases we're going to release 5,000 right now and keep 5,000 in our sellers to release later when we think maybe um, the price will be higher for us to bring it to market. So that's another aspect that there is no universal database for. And um, part of uh, what we try to do is having, we'll, we'll get to this later, but having been in the business for 15 years is you develop these relationships over time and, and uh, try to learn as best as you can what amounts are created, produced, and what's being released. Uh, more more similarities and parallels with sports cards. We know in sports cards, the manufacturer or the distributors actually will often hold back several cases of product until the value goes up and then they can charge a little bit more. So I'm, I'm, I'm learning more and more uh, about these parallels between the two, uh, the two asset classes, if I can, can call them that right now. A quick hello to Collector's Dream. Welcome to the show. Daniel wants to know, uh, is there a type of grading system in terms of wine bottle condition? Obviously, that's a mo- a very important part of sports card collecting. Any sort of, uh, does the condition of the bottle or the condition of the label on the bottle 
Do those have, are there any, any, is, is there value attributed to them in terms of their condition? There absolutely is. Yes. Um, so in wine, uh, we don't have the same sort of, uh, independent, uh, you know, rating system, like a PSA that you'd have in, in trading cards. Um, but rather wine is sold through a number of different channels. Um, and so it might go through auction. It might go through merchants, uh, might go direct to a private uh, collector. And it's basically up to each of them to determine the provenance. When we say provenance, that means authenticity as well as how was, how was it stored? Um, because if it was sitting, you know, in a hot locker in, in, in cooking for 10 years, it's not going to be worth as much as something that you can prove has been professionally stored for 10 years with proper light, humidity, temperature, uh, vibrations are important. So it is important to have records, if you can, to show that, you know, this wine was acquired at the producer, was transported in perfect conditions, stored in perfect conditions, and is now being sold. Um, and, and, and I would say, much like other types of cards, maybe not sports cards, maybe, maybe sports cards, but say like a Pokemon uh, packet, if you can sell uh, a, a packet of Pokemon cards in their original wrappers, I, I assume that's worth more than you know individual Pokemon cards. Um, the same goes for wine. So when we um, talk about the fine wine that, that we have for clients, it's always in full case lots. In other words, still in its original wooden case or original cardboard case, if, if the region produces cardboard casing, um, you don't pull out two or three bottles of the 12 and, and then go try to sell nine or 10 of them. You, you, it goes as a whole just to preserve the value. Very similar to sports cards, uh, unopened product where, you know, the, the investors want the whole case. They don't want a, a one, one of the 12 boxes pulled out of the cases, or they don't want to, if someone is going to offer a box of cards of packs for sale, you don't want to open up those packs and pull out a couple of packs and sell the rest of them. People want the original, uh, the original package. They want them in their original packaging so that you know that you're getting everything that would have been within a whole case. So similar, sim, I think it's a similar approach, but for somewhat, there, there's differences in the reasons for it. It's not about how they were stored as much as it was. I want to make sure that the big case hit is still in that box of cards. So similar. I love these parallels and I, I'm enjoying this approach to this discussion. Well, while we're on, I might as well add another one. Um, so we've got uh, 350 million US dollars in fine wine assets under management. And that is that is all actual fine wine. Um, and so we we acquire, we transport, we insure, we store, and then we'll actively manage um, a client's account for them. So um, the, uh, you know, the, the other thing we have to be very careful about, and it's the same in sports cards, it, it's the same in any collectible, is fraud. Um, and I'm sure many people saw the, uh, the Netflix show Sour Grapes, where, you know, um, a, a bad actor was able to pass off some serious wines um, and fooled a lot of people. So um, for us, you know, it all starts with a buying program. We, we buy as close as we can. Initially, we buy as much from producers directly as we can, and then we buy from brokers and negotiants who are representing the producer, um, and then we'll buy from merchants and traders who have been in the business for decades or hundreds of years because we can't afford to have a fraudulent bottle. And, you know, fortunately, knock on wood for us, 15 years, we've never had one. 
Um, and you have to be very vigilant uh, because they're out there and it's the same in any collectible. It is the same. No, for sure. We, we definitely have that issue in sports cards and, uh, it's it's I, I don't want to say it's nice to know that it happens in other in other uh, verticals as well, but but uh, it, it's somewhat comforting to know that as a whole collectible uh, society uh, society of collectors, we need to always be on on like just well aware of what could be happening out there in terms of fraud. Uh, we're getting lots lots of questions, and uh, I'm going to go to this one from the Luca Nation Network, and I, I'm just curious. Is that is that uh, Cage or is that Andrew? Let let me know who who you are because I know it's one of the two of you. Uh, uh, so Luca Nation says best long term hold, and then I, I'm I don't know these things. Um, I can yeah, you know them, yeah. so I'll let, I'll let you read them and let you, let's hear what you think. All right, Luke uh, Luca Nation, this is good good questions. Um, so uh, traditionally, I'm gonna I'll try to be brief but be um, uh, as expansive as I can. So traditionally. Um, the fine wine market has been dominated by European wines, French and Italian. Um, and it, it's still very much so. When you look at our benchmark allocation, 35% is Burgundy, 35% would be Bordeaux, 10% would be Italy, about 12% would be Champagne, and then the remainder would be the rest of the world, including California. Now, interestingly, a lot of that, again, is historical. And most of the wine trade takes place out of London and Hong Kong. Uh, traditionally, again, in the United States, the market has been an internal sort of domestic market where people get on mailing lists and a lot of the wine gets distributed out through these mailing lists. So um, that said, uh, what we've been seeing for the last few years is a, um, an appreciation, let's say, for more American wine globally. So um, if you look at returns over the last couple of years, in fact, last year, uh, Burgundy returned about 30%, Champagne about 20%. And then the next closest one was uh, US wine dominated by California at about uh, 16 or 17%. So um, a long way of saying that uh, American wines are starting to, to get you know, to where they should be, I think, on the global stage. Um, so that's my long answer to your question. Best long-term hold I, uh, amongst what you've got there. I mean, definitely Scriegel, definitely Harlan. Um, I, we we uh, do a lot with uh, uh, Ridge Montebello, um, Opus One, and uh, a few others um, uh, along that uh, line. And any cool ones on the radar? Well, I have one for you. Um, it's not really under the radar. It's uh, on the radar, but going to be a bigger blip on it uh, as time goes on. But it's called Realm, R-E-A-L-M, R-E-A-L-M. Um, so Realm's a, a great winery in, in Napa. Um, Scott Becker runs it. I had the opportunity to, to see him about a, a year and a bit ago um, in Napa. And they're doing some amazing things, great wines. Um, the, the prices are starting to appreciate, but um, if you find some, try it if you haven't already. Uh, and it's uh, it's wonderful wine. Okay, well, very comprehensive answer. Thank you for that, and nice to know that we are talking to to Cage. Uh, and welcome to the show, Cage. Um, okay, uh, good evening to you, Frank Gastella. Uh, we're going to go to another question now for this one from Brendan Omelia, who says, if the 1952 Topps Mickey Mantle is the modern day holy grail for card collectors, which I think is very fair to say, mm -hmm. what's the wine collector's equivalent? 
or which bottle should we pour into the hall? Yeah, it says, or maybe I should put it this way, which bottle should we pour into the Holy Grail? Wow. Um, yeah, great question. And, and I think, uh, what, was, what is that? Did they go for like $12 million uh, thereabouts? The, uh, uh, well, 12.6 one recently 12. went for, 6, yeah. There we are. Yeah, well, that's, that's, that's big. Um, uh, individual wines won't match the $12 million number. Um, I think the uh, highest selling wine in price uh, was a 1945 Domaine Romani Conti Romani Conti uh, at about $600,000. So that, that's for one bottle. Um, that said, uh, that's your answer. It's a Domaine Romani Conti out of Burgundy. Um, it's, it's the cream of the crop in Burgundy. Uh, the wine is hard to get when you do get it and experience it. It's life changing. Um, and they hold their value and increase over time um, exponentially. So uh, I, I would put DRC right in that, um, uh, you know, right in the bracket of a, a Mickey Mantle uh, sports card when you're making the comparison to wine. Yeah, well, well first of all, we got to give some credit here to, to Cage of Luca Nation, who who did nail it. Congratulations <laughs> to you, Cage. I, I read I read his answer. I thought, well, I have no idea if that's if that's right or not. But uh I must say, Cage, I'm I'm impressed. I am impressed. <laughs> Nicely um, done. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you this uh, because you've you've said you know even when you taste it, it can be life changing. And the thing that that in sports cards we've had a lot of people come into the hobby lately who are just buying and selling cards, and we always feel like those of us in the hobby who are you know, and not just not just true collectors, but you know, if you're thinking logically, you understand that a sports card needs an end user. It needs its final home. It needs a collector to, to own it at some point in time. Otherwise it might be a game of hot potato. You just might be selling cards over and over again among, among resellers, but eventually they should end up with a final owner until that person, you know, has to move it for whatever reason, like, like they're going to pass away or something with wine is the, is the eventual end user going to be the person who actually consumes it and drinks it. Is that the like a bottle of wine for six hundred thousand dollars? Is that going to get be drank by by people? I would say the overwhelming majority of wines will ultimately be consumed by somebody, um, and so you know there is a life to wine. It's it's a it there'll be a point where it's past its past its due date and it's not going to taste good. Um, so. For us, when, when you separate your wine drinking hat from your investment hat, um, that's important because you could have an iconic Bordeaux, for example, that, that could be a 50, 60, 70 year wine, um, and we'll buy it on release. And for our investment clients, you know, we might, we, we're constantly looking at the risk reward between holding on to something too long and selling it. And so, you know, with that particular Bordeaux, 15 years in, we might say, you know, it's had a good run up in price. It's probably a good time to sell it and we'll get you into something else that has a better opportunity percentage wise to increase. Um, so that's how we look at it as investors. Now I put on my wine drinking hat and I go, Hey, that's great. There's a case of, you know, Bordeaux that's 15 years old. I know it's been stored perfectly. Um, great. I'll buy it. And then I'll keep it in my cellar and maybe drink one, you know, one a year for the next 12 years sort of thing. So, you know, you got to separate 
why you're holding it um, and when you're thinking about this. But ultimately, uh, wine is for drinking. And at some point, um, you know, someone is going to buy it and drink it. Whether they pay $18 for the bottle or 600000 it's going to get drank eventually. Yeah. The, the only exception to that is uh, if you ever find a legitimate Thomas Jefferson Bordeaux bottle from uh, the 1700s with his initials on it. In that case, no one's going to drink it, but it's worth a lot. And would it, but it wouldn't be good anymore, would it? It would not be good. No. no. So it now you, now it's good. having the bottle in your collection is, is prestigious in and of itself, having it, exactly. having it displayed for when, when your, your guests come over. Okay. Um, Richard Price puts up a question. He wants to know what happens when someone buys an expensive bottle, but it ends up tasting bad. Uh, to paraphrase. Yeah, from the investment uh, aspect of it, um, again, we manage that. We we don't hold our, our wine too long, and we don't go out trying to buy wine from, you know, like the 1947 Cheval Blanc, which is, uh, you know, one of the finest wines ever made, uh, if not the best wine ever made. But it doesn't make sense for us to go to tr try to find that uh, bottle First of all, it'd be hard to find. Secondly, hard to find a case. Thirdly, hard to verify its authenticity. Fourth, um, who knows whether the reward for holding it's going to be worth it. So a lot of reasons why we don't do that. Um, but somebody who's a private collector might go out and say, hey, I've never had that and I want to try it. So I'm going to take my chances and buy it and drink it. Um, so to answer your question, from the investment standpoint, we manage that issue. Um, we would, I, I'm I think I'm, I can say we'd never have a wine past its due date or past a point where it, it would be good. Um, but as a private person, collector or otherwise, it can happen if you don't track your, your um, inventory, if you don't kind of read all of the, the critics about the wines who taste them. You know, more recently, Cellar Tracker is a good source for community notes. And so all of that information can help you kind of determine now is a great time to drink it, or maybe I need to wait another three or five years. Um, it's just, it's a bit of legwork. So the due diligence that you do when you are, when you are deploying your client's funds into some wine assets is extremely important. And that's why they're trusting you because they're, they're actually, you're, you're like a portfolio manager in that they're trusting you to do your diligence on what it is that you will be buying that is in line with their interests. And I think that's got to be something that the team at Collectible must have been very uh, impressed with in order for them to be willing to partner with you as they, as they, I, I assume, became interested in partnering with a wine expert and a wine investor uh, investment company like, like Cult Wines. Um, I'm assuming that, that the discussions that you would have had with Ezra along the way, the CEO of Collectible, included some of this discussion. Is that, would that be correct? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, y you know, as you know, uh, obviously Collectible has been known for sports and, and trading cards. Um, and as we've talked a bit already tonight, there, there are a number of similarities. So I think it made sense uh, for Ezra and the team, you know, to take their experience and expertise in a particular collectible and look to expand out into other collectibles. Um, and so uh, uh, Ezra and I were on a panel together last year in, in December, and then we, we chatted afterwards, and, and that's how we kind of came up with this uh, partnership. And um, yeah, I, you're absolutely right. I mean, there are a lot of um, a lot of similarities. 
and ho hopefully you know we'll be able to start out uh, with uh, with our offer in February and then uh, grow the partnership from there. Yeah, that that's exciting. I mean, as 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 I told you, I'm I'm not a wine drinker. I'm not a wine connoisseur. I I don't have much interest in it myself, but I'm very interested in the collector investor mentality around it. I find it fascinating as I'm interested in any collectible that any any subculture of people would be interested in. So, I well, again, while not for me, I'm I find I'm I love looking for these parallels as well uh, with that uh, Cage makes the comment here saying, this is fun. I've been collecting wine since I got my first Screaming Eagle allotment in 1997. Nice. And he says, this is a cool crossover. And that's what this is for me is a cool crossover. I haven't put on put out on Instagram today. I said, not my wheelhouse, but I want to learn about it. So anyone who who saw that, I said, come join me. Let's learn about something outside of our, our comfort zone. Uh, quick hello to, to uh, Jake Dahl. Welcome to the show, Jake. Good to see you. And Brendan O'Malley put in a question that I was just going to ask, something very similar. So the timing is good. He says, can you talk about how the pandemic affected the wine market? Was there a collector boom? And I had I made a note a few minutes ago, Brendan, that said COVID bump. Was there was there any, you know, in sports cards, there was a big, a big bump in the hobby that coincided with the pandemic because, you know, people were were bored. They had more time on their hands and they went to look for hobbies. Did you did you in your industry in the wine industry uh, experience anything similar? Um, I, I think the short answer is yes, and so I, absolutely. If you all remember back to the first days of lockdown, it was uh, well, you know, what are you gonna do now? Let's have some wine yeah. <laughs> or beer, or whatever, whatever your drink of choice was. Um, so I think their consumption did go up, and I, I'm sure that's a fact. Um, and yeah. a lot of online wine buying went up too, and and so. Um, Yes, absolutely. Consumption went up in those first uh, number of months. Um, but in terms of the collecting, the answer there is yes as well. Um, and, and I'm not sure if it was the same sort of bump that, uh, uh, that other collectibles like sports cards got. Um, but in terms of the pricing of wine, uh, there were a lot of factors involved in driving prices much higher than you would have expected. And, you know, a great case study is champagne. So just before, uh, 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 just when COVID hit, um, the, the governing authorities in champagne said, oh my goodness, uh, COVID's hit, no one's gonna drink champagne. So let's reduce production. And so they made a, a, a decree that only so much could be produced that year. Well, as it turned out, like I just said, a lot of people had champagne maybe or were buying champagne and instead of saving it for their birthday, they said, it's Wednesday night, let's pop it open. Um, and so the demand for champagne went way up and then you, you, you mix in the lower production, mix in the fact that there's supply chain problems and you may have experienced this yourself, but on, on yours, there, there was not a lot of champagne on the shelves. So the price went up. So the uh, champagne sort of sub-index in 2021 went up 41%. And that was, that was almost all driven by pandemic issues. So uh, prices did go up uh, in 2021 throughout uh, all regions. And, and it was the same last year, not to the same extent as 2021, but um, still up there. The, the other thing was on the supply side. Producers had 
for a long time relied on restaurants and hospitality um, mm. to sell their wine into. And then when all that was closed down, they realized, gosh, um, we need to build our private client business out a bit more. Um, and so for us, for, for Cult Wines, we've got, um, obviously, we're direct to, to client uh, at this stage, and we have um, a number of clients around the world. And so we benefited from also being in a position to help producers sell their wine uh, into our client portfolios when they couldn't find outlets elsewhere. Interesting. Very, very interesting. Um, I wanted to ask about the collectability of, you know, we sort of touched on it before, but is there a market for empty bottle collecting, uh, wine label collecting? Do people have, 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 have people figured out a way to remove the labels from the bottles? Do people, is there, is there a, you know, cause again, as a collector of cards, that's more, I can see that because, you know, it's smaller, you can put it in an album, you could, you know, is there a market for label collecting or, or empty bottle collecting? Um, I'd say, unfortunately not, 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 not that you're going to, um, you're not going to, you're not going to retire on it. Let's say, well, you, you might've just saved me a bunch of money. Now I can't go buy the stuff. So that's good. <laughs> um, yeah, it, there isn't a big market there. Um, you know, old labels you'll get, you won't see it. Like, I think it's 30, $40 for a label. Um, and, uh, bottles are, you know, maybe in the hundreds for empty ones. So, so mostly you're going to get your value out of the wine that's in a bottle. Um, and, uh, just, just taking that one step further, uh, back on the issue of, of fraud and, and counterfeits. Um, I do know actually a lot of, um, uh, uh, collectors and friends who uh, will insist that their bottles be um, destroyed after a, an old sort of rare bottle is, um, is, uh, consumed for that reason. They don't want the bottle to fall into the hands of a counterfeiter who can then use that bottle and put in, you know, something that's, that's not uh, the real wine. So, um, mm. uh, sometimes we do worry about that as well, which is, you know, if some old bottles are for sale, you know, are people really buying it for investment or is it for yeah, some various no. oh, reason? That's a really good point. See, I, yeah, learning. I love, I love learning about this stuff. Uh, Cage asked a question a few minutes ago. Very, very, let's do this one quickly. Best vintage. Is it 1982? What region? What region, Cage, if you're still there? What region? And then I, well, while we get an answer from him, we'll come back to that one. And Jake Dahl once says, you know, Scotch whiskey, I think, is another great investment. And that ties into a question I was going to ask, which was, why wine? Why is wine such a coveted, you know, alcoholic beverage asset compared to vodka or beer or Scotch whiskey? And I do believe there, I've heard about some Scotch investing, but... Can you just sort of explain what differentiate besides the fact it's made out of the ingredients and how it's made? Why is wine so investable and collectible? And is it does it just come down to the that many more people enjoy it? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, I I, <clears throat> I don't know the answer. I mean, Scotch whiskey, uh, there is a market for that, and then the returns uh, uh, have been you know very good over the years. So we we don't we don't really do. Um, spirits. Uh, we we have experimented a little bit with supplying some scotch to a platform that then fractionalizes it, and uh, you know we're we've learned a bit about it, but but we don't really do it. It's not our like like you say, Jeremy. It's not our wheelhouse, um, and it's not my personal wheelhouse either. Uh, so 
all I can say is, I mean, there is a market for it. There are a lot of scotch aficionados. I know a whole bunch who collect scotch and have way more than they'll ever drink or share with friends. But, um, you know, I don't have an answer for that. Cognac, uh, sake as well on the global markets is, is picking up. You're seeing more of those types of spirits sold at auction for, um, you know, pretty good returns. So uh, it may just be a quirk of tradition that, you know, fine wine was this, you know, elusive uh, liquid that uh, um, was kind of enjoyed by a few people. And, and, and um, you know, now it's getting more democratized. I, I'm not sure. Don't, yeah. I don't really answer that. How can how can an amateur like myself, as an example, if I if I was somebody who enjoyed wine, how can I get past this? What I perceive to be a stigma that that wine is for, and don't take this the wrong way, say for snobs or for the rich. Are are there price points for every potential wine collector and investor? Right. Yeah. So I mean, one of the things we want to do at Cult Wines is, you know, for a long time, wine has been institutionally made intimidating to people and, and it's unfortunate because you know you shouldn't feel intimidated going in to buy wine at any store um, you should feel good about buying wine and buying what you like it doesn't matter what you, what you like just you know buy it enjoy it um, so traditionally it's it's been sort of shrouded in this mystery and you know only a few people know the answers well there, there really isn't an answer um, and so what we would like to do is make it a little uh, less intimidating, more inclusive, and, um, you know, just help people who do want to learn. So we do have on our website education. We do webinars. We do um, tastings with, with groups that maybe uh, want to learn about wine but haven't traditionally been um, experienced or um uh, allowed access or had access to wines. So, um, yeah, we, we, we kind of really believe in that. And that's why we are all about making it more, you know, transparent and accessible uh, and understandable. We want to make it easier to understand. Um, so for our for our clients and investors, you know, we, we run the gamut as well. We have some people who don't drink wine um, and they understand the investment merits and, and want to be part of the investment. And then at the other end, as I've said, you've got some serious wine aficionados who have giant sellers, but they come to us to manage their investment piece. So, um, you know, hopefully we're doing a, a little bit, our little part to, to try to make it less um, snobby and intimidating. I appreciate um, that. Price points, um, you know, after saying all that, uh, <laughs> it's still a, it's still an investment. And so, you know, the, the two there's a number of factors that drive the value of wine, but two big ones are um, scarcity and um, uh, longevity. Like you, you, you need a wine that's going to live for 20 years, 25, 30, 40 years. You also need a wine that's not mass produced in, in the, the billions of bottles, right? And so by, ne by necessity, therefore, the entry point for a particular bottle of wine is going to be a little bit higher than your average, right? So you, you, you probably aren't going to build a portfolio on $20 wines, but you could at 90 or $100 and, and up. Interesting. So you said scarcity and longevity. And I'm, I'm thinking to myself, what are the parallels in sports cars? Well, scarcity is scarcity. We have the same. That's a parallel between the two. 
longevity might be, you know, the, the whole thinking about a player who's going to have a long career or who's, who has had a long career, who isn't injury prone. Um, or maybe it's a card of a brand that has a lot of brand equity because the brand has been around for 20 years or, or 10 years now. And isn't just a, a brand that, that, you know, tops Panini or Upper Deck puts out once or twice and then, and then cancels it. So as I try to look for these, uh, for these parallels, that's interesting. Richard Price does ask a question. Do you collect cards? And if so, what do you collect? Uh, I, I, I don't. Um, I, that's I, fine. You can I, say I, no. I, you don't not have to. Not professionally. As a kid, I did. Um, and it was mostly, uh, I'm Canadian, um, so mostly hockey cards. Uh, I don't have any, I don't, I don't have a Gretzky rookie card, although I wish I did. <laughs> um, no worries. <laughs> but well, uh, uh, probably nothing recent other than ones that uh, my, my kids are into Pokemon. So we've got Pokemon cards. Uh, they're into American football. So we have bought some recently. I know I'm going to get a lot of booze here, but uh, the entire family is a um, Tom Brady fan. So uh, <laughs> Uh, to to your point, uh, Jerry. I mean, he's he's played in the league for a long time, and, and his cards obviously command some some high values uh, from the early years. So um, yeah, sorry, I'm, I'm not quite sense. there. Yet. And there's there, you know, that make that that's a good reason. And uh, if you're collecting Tom Brady, that would give me additional comfort in you managing some of my funds in in the wine world because you understand longevity and and you know scarcity in the to the extent that it's a it's a scarce Tom Brady card. Let's let's talk a bit about your company, Cult Wines, and learn a bit more about what you're doing there. I mean, you've talked, you've touched on it throughout, but I'm gonna just read out the questions I had for you, and I'm gonna let you speak freely about them. So, a bit about the history of the company, um, how you set yourself apart from other wine investment platforms, the process to get involved, and the services that you provide. Please have at it. All right. Um, so uh, Cult Wines was started in 2007 in London, UK, by our current uh, global CEO, uh, whose name is Tom Gearing. So he and his father, Phil, started it um, 15 years ago. Uh, we now have, as I've mentioned, about 350 million US dollars in fine wine assets under management. Um, we've got seven offices around the world and about 80 people uh, on the team. So uh, that's, that's a bit on the company. Um, how do you get involved? Well, we, uh, I mentioned a bit about this and I won't go into the detail of onboarding, but um, right now we're mostly direct to client. Uh, and so we will onboard an individual match uh, fine wine portfolio to their objectives and then actively manage that portfolio for them. Um, we are doing more things like, like we're doing with collectible where um, in this case, for accredited investors, there's my lawyer hat, uh, we'll have uh, an, an offer out in, in uh, well, in February, it's almost February, uh, that will be a BWIC plus uh, opportunity to fractionalize. So we're doing more things with partners who will distribute wine as an asset class through securities, for example. Um, and uh, uh, basically, th those are kind of the main things you should know. Um, we also have an investment committee. Uh, I'm on it. We meet quarterly. We set benchmark allocations. Um, like any other investment, it's important to be diversified. And so we uh, do ensure that our clients don't put all of their eggs in one basket um, and diversify out uh, through different regions. Um, 
And uh, I, one other thing I should mention is we do, um, that's the asset management side of our business. And we've been working in beta and, and it's to be released imminently is a trading app. Uh, so it'll be called Cult X. And um, it'll be, uh, you, we've put all of our inventory on the blockchain. And so um, through this marketplace trading platform, which will have all kinds of DIY um, materials for people who want to do it on their own, um, you'll be able to buy, sell, transact. You can do it digitally um, or uh, because it's a physical commodity, you can also take uh, possession of it at any time. So um, those are some of the things that, uh, that we're up to. Awesome. No, that's great. I want to touch on the the partnership with Collectible again. So you mentioned that you're going to do an offering on the in the February uh, version of, of the BWIC, the bids wanted in competition. Uh, can you give us a preview? What what the what is it going to be a case of wine? Is it going to be a bottle? What is it? What region? What what vintage? Um, yeah, get get us a little bit excited about what's to come on Collectible if you are able to. Yeah, um, we haven't finalized the entire. Um let's call it a parcel just yet, but uh, our, our focus will be on uh, iconic uh, Californians. Um, and so uh, uh, you'll, you'll probably see some of those names that we talked about earlier, as well as uh, some first growth Bordeaux. So we're going to keep it at the sort of tier A level on, on the first, uh, first offer. Okay, very cool. And can you give me an idea of uh, what the value of that basket would be? Now, I know it's where you know, a lot of what the BWIC does is offer price discovery. So I don't know if this is something you you, you are not able to mention, but I want to ask in any event, like what, what sort of valuation would you put on this basket or what are you shooting for in terms of this, this BWIC offering? Yeah, so we haven't, like I said, we haven't quite finalized all of the, um, um, the, the cases that we would have in there. So I really don't have an answer for you. I mean, I can say safely it'll be six figures, but uh, whether okay. kind of low to mid, we'll figure that out. We're still working on the uh, the logistics of it. Interesting. Oh, it's, I appreciate that even uh, to know. And uh, good luck as you as you finalize that. I'm sure it's yeah, uh, it's going to be exciting. And it's got to be exciting for you to do this. Um, you mentioned that you've worked, or, or there's other fractionalization of wine going on out there. Uh, but is this your first time? working with a with a company who's doing a, a BWIC uh, process? Yeah, it absolutely is. So, um, you know, we're, we're looking forward to going through the, um, uh, the process with Collectible and, and uh, all of the supporters of Collectible. And, and it'll be uh, it'll be a fun, uh, fun process. And, and part of it is also education. And so we're hoping that, you know, we'll be able to, to, to together be able to um, expand the um, the audience for fine wine and and have some fun and do some education along the way as well. And I, I hope this episode, this interview right here, will will contribute to that education because I feel like we're getting a lot of good information out of you. So, um, Dr. has this question: Do people collect wine bottle corks? I always thought they were cool. That's a that's a fun <laughs> question. Similar to my question about bottles and labels, I can't believe I didn't think about asking about corks. So, yeah. thank you, Dr. for filling in that gap. So. Over to you, Atal. I don't. I don't know the answer from a, an investment perspective. My my guess is it's going to be the same as the answer for labels and bottles. Like you could probably get something for them, but it won't be a lot. Um, they do make a great uh, if you if you've got like kind of a, a glass 
big glass vase and keep tossing them in as you 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 open bottles it makes for a kind of a nice decoration in a in a bar or um, a tasting area if you have one um, but uh, from an investment standpoint i would guess that it's it it, it would be hard to to make a living on it yeah, I, I can see people collecting them, but not for value, just right. for just as a collection. Yeah, yeah. And we uh, we we used to collect uh, a lot um, as a, my wife and I, and, and uh, uh, on special occasions, you'd have the cork and you'd write just kind of in pen on, you know, this is birthday wine or anniversary wine, and then just sort of keep those corks. So, yeah. Brendan O'Malley has this comment. The Hall of Fame pitcher Tom Seaver started a Napa vineyard after his retirement from baseball at all. Maybe you could start collecting baseball wine. Congrats on a great discussion, gentlemen. <laughs> that's Thank great. You. Well, uh, that that's a great uh, comment, Fred. And the uh, I'm sure everyone on this uh, YouTube will have either come across or collected or wanted to collect uh, LeBron cards or Dwayne Wade or or um, uh, Carmelo Anthony, and all of those guys are incredibly wine knowledgeable. Um, people and and if you follow their instas, you see them uh, drinking some fabulous wines um, in some fabulous places. But um, well, what about what about Wayne Gretzky's vineyard? He had he had a, a wine brand. He does, he yeah, yeah. Blood. I think he lent his name to it. Um, and and yes, there is a Gretzky brand. Um, Dwayne Wade's making wine, uh, like his his winery um, produces some some great uh, California wines. If you haven't tried them, uh, you should try. Uh, very cool. And uh, Kamikaze, I see your comments. I don't really know which what, what you're uh, what you're referring to in the first one, but welcome to the show, Kamikaze Sports Card Hybrid. Um, okay. He, oh well, here he says, if my wife would let me hide the bottle after, I'd crack a bottle. Okay. <laughs> Good. Um, so listen, we're we're gonna wrap this up at all. But I mean, is there anything else you'd like to know or, or talk about? Um, we've got through everything that 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 I wanted. To to get through um yeah anything uh, anything else you'd like to mention before we we end this no i, th I think uh, we covered a lot jeremy and thanks to everyone for those great questions um i would just say again thanks for having me on thanks thanks for watching everybody and and cult wines is, is really excited about um working with collectible and ezra and his team have just done a great job and we're, we're very excited Good. I, I'm, I love to hear that. That's great. Well, thanks for joining. And uh, and with that, thanks everybody in the chat for, for following along and your comments and questions. This was a lot of fun. A lot of fun for me just to, to learn more about an area that I haven't uh, really studied or gotten to know. So a great introduction, uh, Atoll. So thank you so much for that. And uh, to everyone else out there, again, thank you and uh, have a great week ahead. We'll be back next week. Atoll, you hang tight right there for a moment. Yeah, thank and you. We will uh, end this episode. So thank you everyone for one last time. This episode is now over. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.